Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship, to be in your presence. I pray, God, that we might experience the washing this morning by the water of the word, that you would speak truth to our hearts, challenge us even deeper to follow after you, to die to self and live to your glory. To that end, in Jesus' name, amen. We've talked a good bit over the past few months about sin, and um, with Bill's message last week, it occurred to me as he was wrapping up then last week that a good follow-up to that message this week would be to talk about that aspect of the believer's life that enables us to have victory over sin. Of course, it's only by the blood of Christ applied to our lives through faith in Him that we have that hope. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So this morning, I want to look at some Scripture to encourage each of us in our faith walk, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. Now, one of the most encouraging passages from Scripture regarding faith to me, of course, is found in Hebrews chapter 11 and in chapter 12. Normally, I study and speak from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, but This morning, I want to reference the scriptures as found in the New International Version because there are a couple of key passages that are translated more powerfully, I believe, in the NIV. Now, the core of this message was shared with me by my spiritual mentor and dear friend J.L. Williams, who's in the Lord's presence even as we speak. And I've taken the core of J.L.'s message and added some thoughts and hopefully insights Uh, of my own. Now, J.L.'s message had 15 points, and it was covered in about 20 pages of notes, so it would be about an hour long, and he wouldn't apologize for that. But I'm hoping to cover uh, much of the same ground in half the time, so bear with me. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the most famous and familiar chapters, of course, in the Bible. It's the great faith chapter of Scripture, where we walk through what we might call the Faith Hall of Fame. But too often we just walk through this Faith Hall of Fame and say that this kind of life was for the spiritual pros, the big boys, the spiritual heavyweights. It's not realistic for me in my life. We see these people of old, these saints in stained glass windows, which the way we see them, nice to look at, but I could never be one of them. And as a result of unbelief, many Christians live a life of fear rather than a life of faith. But we should look at Hebrews 11 and Acts 28 as open-ended chapters in the Bible. We don't add to or take away from Scripture, but they were not meant to be just ancient history, but rather contemporary history as well. They were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to inspire us to live a life of faith. We are supposed to continue to allow the Holy Spirit to add new verses and chapters to these historic accounts of the exploits of faith. They, 
are to be the story of our lives. And with that in mind, let's look at the principle of faith. Now, the word principle means the ultimate source, origin, or cause of something, a fundamental truth, law, doctrine, an essential element or motivating force upon which others are based, a rule of conduct. So the principle of faith is the code or commandment by which we are to conduct our lives. As Christians, faith is our code of conduct. It's important to point out that verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews contains the only clear definition of faith in the entire Bible. And it goes like this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Therefore, while verse 1 defines what faith is, the rest of the chapter describes and demonstrates how faith works. Verse 2 says, This is what the ancients were commended for, or as the New American Standard Version puts it, by the men of old, by it the men of old gained approval. So the principle of faith, the code of conduct of the believer, is absolutely necessary for men of old and for men of today to gain God's approval. There's simply no other way to find favor with God except by faith in Christ. Now that's why verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So we only win God's approval or please God by living our lives by the principle of faith, which is our code of conduct. Now there's the principle of faith, and then there's the prerequisite of faith. First, it's important to see that faith begins with hope. As we saw in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Hope means that we have a discontent with the way things are a longing for something better or for someone better to come into our lives, someone who can totally fulfill us. We have an existential longing for more, some lasting relationship rather than just something more to add to our already overcrowded and unfulfilled lives. This existential longing has been described as a God-shaped vacuum. We try to fill it with relationships, with alcohol, sex, drugs, work, career, whatever. But it's God-shaped, and only He can fill it. Hope is the prerequisite to faith. We must be dissatisfied with the status quo for faith to have an opportunity in our lives. Hope means that we're consciously longing for something more. And secondly, faith is based upon the conviction of a reality that goes beyond our senses. Faith is based upon the conviction of a reality that goes beyond our senses. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. That means that we believe in a reality that we cannot see. Faith means that we stake our physical lives upon a spiritual world that we cannot see. Faith means that we believe the fact that we are surrounded by an unseen spiritual kingdom that is more real 
than the physical one that we see and live in. Let me say that again. Faith means that we believe in the fact that we are surrounded by an unseen spiritual kingdom that is more real than the physical one that we see and that we live in. The key point of this message this morning is to encourage us to begin to reorient our thinking regarding faith so that we begin to perceive what we cannot see and to understand and believe in that which we cannot see in the natural realm that is true and real in the spiritual and that surrounds us every day. The kingdom of God is around us and in us in Christ. Now, as adults, we often misunderstand verse 6. We think and act as if it's very difficult to believe that God exists. Our false presupposition is that faith is difficult. But the opposite is true. Faith is the most basic principle by which all of us live our lives. We all have faith. We exercise faith a hundred times a day. When Greg came in and sat in that chair, he had faith that it would hold him up. Faith is not a unique Christian concept. The only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the object of our faith. The object of our faith as believers is Christ. The believers in Christ is the true and living God. It's not difficult to believe that God exists because the evidence is all around us. As Carla was praying, it's about to explode in nature the evidence of His creation. It's everywhere. Therefore, faith is a shortcut to the obvious. That's why C.S. Lewis said that most of us take a circuitous journey to the obvious. It really takes great effort to disbelieve that God exists. To To do so, you have to ignore all the evidence that's around us. As John wrote in 1 John 1, 9, there is a true light that gives light to every man. And it's because of the light of natural revelation that Paul said in Romans 1, 20, that every man is without excuse. Now, children have no problem believing in what they cannot see. That's why Jesus used a little child as a model of faith in Matthew 18, 2 through 3. He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 11, 25, he also said, I praise your Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Remember this basic principle. Belief is is natural. Unbelief, disbelief is unnatural. Belief is natural. Disbelief is unnatural. There's no such thing as a natural-born atheist. (laughs) Atheists are trained, taught, conditioned to disbelieve. Atheism takes a lot of work. That's why C.S. Lewis, a once avowed atheist who set out to disprove Christianity once and for all, and became a believer in the process, said this, An atheist must always be very careful about what he thinks about. 
He must constantly guard his thoughts to make sure that none come into his mind that would remind him of the existence of God. Perhaps it takes more faith to not believe in God than it takes to believe in Him. So faith then is the assurance that the things that you hope for will be achieved by relying on the things you cannot see. Things like love. It's important to confirm that faith is not fantasy. Faith is fact. It is reality. It is only faith that takes us out of fantasy, out of illusion, non-reality, and it anchors us. Faith anchors us in the only one true reality, God Himself. Faith believes that He is, and in believing, there's great reward. The Scripture says He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. But His rewards come only to those who earnestly seek Him. God's rewards are not for the curious or the casual, the carnal, or the conceited. No. The rewards of God are only for the called, the committed, and the courageous. Now we move from the principle of faith and the prerequisite of faith, which is hope, to the people of faith in this chapter. We move from the definition of faith to the description or demonstration of faith. This demonstration of faith in chapter 11 is seen in the lives of over two dozen people. Eighteen are specifically named, and the rest are generally implied. Each of these people is a story unto themselves. Each is characterized by some great act of faith. That's why the phrase, by faith, is found 20 times in chapter 11 of Hebrews. It was by their faith, through their faith, because of their faith, that they pleased God and gained approval from God. Who were these people? Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses, the Israelites, and Rahab are all listed by the writer of Hebrews. And then he says, what more shall I say? I do not have time. Seems like a preacher who's always got more to say than he has time. And then he continues with Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, plural. These were the people of faith in Hebrews 11. Now let's look at what these people of faith did through the power of faith. They conquered kingdoms, David. They administered justice, David. They gained what was promised, the Israelites and the promised land. They shut the mouths of lions, Daniel. They quenched the fury of the flames, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They escaped the edge of the sword, Moses whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, judges. Women received back their dead by resurrection, the widow of Zarephath. But the writer does not stop there. He doesn't end the chapter with the glowing and glorious stories of victories of faith. 
He's not like many of the Word of Faith preachers that only talk about the triumphs but never mention the, the pain and the tragedies. The writer portrays a balanced picture of faith. He talks about the prosperity of faith, and he also talks about the poverty of faith, the pleasure of faith, and the pain of faith. Our Hebrews 11 journey through the Faith Hall of Fame, if you will, also includes the hallway of the martyrs, those whose faith led to tragedy, humanly speaking, rather than triumph. Those who died in what appeared to be defeat rather than victory. Those who, by faith, ended their lives in poverty, privation, and persecution rather than in peace and prosperity. This portion of that chapter could be called the persecution of faith. These people of faith that we read about in verse 35 are referred to as and others. It's worth noting that faith led these others to experience these things. They were tortured, refused release that they might gain a better resurrection, faced jeers and flogging, chained and put in prison, stoned, sawed in two, as was Isaiah the prophet. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, wandered in deserts, mountains, in caves, in holes of the ground. What does the Bible say about these men and women of faith in this group? Does it suggest that there was some deficiency in their faith walk that resulted in them suffering so? Absolutely not. There's no hint of that whatsoever in Scripture. In fact, the opposite is true. The Bible simply says in verse 38 of chapter 11, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. Because of the sacrifice of their faith, this world did not deserve their presence. They were worthy men and women who lived among an unworthy people. Their faith made them worthy of another world, a heavenly world where righteousness reigns supreme, where faith becomes sight. What motivated these people to face such poverty, privation, and persecution? It was faith. Faith gave them a different view of this life. And that brings us to the perspective of faith. It was faith that radically reoriented their priorities in life. The Bible says that they did it so that they might gain a better resurrection. Verse 35. Not just a resurrection, that's a reality for every believer but a better resurrection. These martyrs had an unseen perspective on life. They believed in the eternal so much that it radically changed the way they lived in the temporal. Their faith enabled them to pursue a better resurrection rather than a better life. The better life was not to be found here, but rather in heaven. This temporal life would pass and there was going to be a resurrection. It was this faith perspective 
that motivated Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to live, as the scripture says, like stranger, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not, this is a great verse. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10 and 13 through 16. It was this same faith perspective that caused Moses to refuse to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he he saw him who was invisible. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. That's chapter 11, 24 through 28. These faithful saints knew that they would one day be repaid, rewarded by the God who is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. By faith, they knew that this brief life was not all that there is. It's worthy noting that all of these faithful saints in chapter 11 of Hebrews are commended for their faith. Not just the ones in the first part of the chapter. And this is what we might call the praise of faith. After talking about those who were tortured, jeered, flogged, chained, put in prison, stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. After describing the wardrobe of some of the faithful as sheepskins and goatskins, after taking us to their home addresses of deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground, the writer emphatically says in verse 39, these were all commended for their faith. They were praised, recognized by God for their life of faith. Which brings us to the patience of faith. In spite of all they gave up, all that they walked away from, turned their backs upon, the scripture says, yet none of them received what had been promised. Verse 39. You know, it's one thing to give up comfort and peace and prosperity, success, recognition, achievement, all those things, if you know that you'll immediately receive and return something better to replace it with. But these stalwart saints saints gave up everything and died without ever having their faith become sight. As the writer of Hebrews clearly points out in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. That's the patience of faith. True faith understands that we will not receive all the rewards of obedience in this life. 
in a day characterized by a people who want instant gratification, it takes a real faith commitment to wait for reward. But why did they have to wait? Verse 40 tells us that God had planned something better for us so that only together with us, we could call this the partnership of faith. God's plan did not just include these ancients, these men and women of old. No, His plan includes us. Another distinguishing mark of Christianity is its usness, if you will. The Christian faith is not a solo faith. It's a corporate faith. It's a body faith. God planned something better for us, and that is the perfection of faith. The Bible tells us that it was only together with us, with us that these ancients, these men of old who lived by faith, would be made perfect. The word here for perfect is the Greek word teleos. It signifies having reached its end to be finished, perfect, completed. Remind you of anything? For me, it brings to mind the words of Christ on the cross when He declared, it is finished. They could not be made perfect through their faith alone. They had to wait until Christ came and made it possible for us to be made perfect together. It was because of us that they had to exercise the patience of faith. It was because of us that they not only lived by faith, but they had to also die in faith. It was so that this eternal partnership of faith between them and us could be established. It was so that we too could be included in the Faith Hall of Fame by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Praise God for the partnership of faith that results in the perfection of faith, both theirs and ours. Well, that ends chapter 11, but it doesn't end the story. We now come to one of those great therefore transitions in the Bible. Immediately after the last verse of chapter 11, the writer says in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. Now remember, when we come to a therefore in the Bible, we must ask, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? Here the faith becomes intensely personal. The transitional emphasis was from them to us. The Holy Spirit widens the life of faith to include us. He quickly moves us from being spectators to being participators. And this is the proclamation of faith. In chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews relates these great men and women of faith to us. He relates their lives to our lives. He reminds us that, reminds us that they were faithful in life and faithful in death. Therefore, their lives are to be a proclamation, a testimony, an example, a demonstration to us of how we too are to live. <clears throat> he writes in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
What does it mean to be surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses? Have you pondered that? We should not view this verse in terms of an athletic event where the saints of old are in the stands watching and we're on the playing field and they're cheering us on. It's not speaking in terms like that. Neither does it mean that our dearly departed ones who've gone before us, our family members who are in heaven, that they're watching us from heaven. No, the testimonies of their lives are witnessing to us from the pages of Scripture. That means that every time you read the Bible, you are surrounding your life with their lives. You're surrounding your hope with their hope. You're surrounding your faith with their faith. Your obedience with their obedience. The record of their lives is a proclamation of faith to us. They are proclaiming to us that we should throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. One of the reasons I wanted to read the NIV version is New American Standards says lay aside. Same principle, but I like throw it off. <laughs> Cast it away. And the sin that so easily entangles us. What sin is that that he's referring to? In the contextual reading of the Hebrews' letter, it's clear that the sin continually warned about is the sin of unbelief. Chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews are not the Faith Hall of Fame, but they, they could be called the Unbelief Hall of Shame. Unbelief is the great sin that kept a whole generation of Israelites from entering into God's rest. Unbelief kept them from living the life of faith just like it does us. This brings us to the perseverance of faith. Throw off everything that hinders so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The surrounding cloud of witnesses urges us on to run the race, to persevere. The only way to do so is by looking to the perfecter of faith. We can look to those saints of old for encouragement, but we know that at one time or another, each of them faltered and floundered in their faith. None of them lived a perfect life. To see perfection, we have to look to Jesus. He is the incarnation of faith. We must, as Scripture says in Hebrews 12 too, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, perfecter of our faith. Anyone who's tried to live the life of faith knows that there are both pains and pleasures in faithfulness. For the Christian, this is key, all the pain we will ever experience will be in this life. All the pain we will ever experience is here and now. Conversely, for the non-Christian, all of the pleasure he will ever experience is limited to this life. The Bible assures us that eternal joy awaits the Christian. As Psalm 1611 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's why Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The eternal joy that awaited him as a result of his being both the author of our salvation, Hebrew 2.10, and the author of our faith, gave him the strength to endure the pain and shame of crucifixion. And it's only as we keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus that we too will be able to endure the pain and shame that will inevitably come with the life of faith. But whereas the pains are only temporal, the pleasures for the believer are eternal. Know that we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us in our walk of faith. We do not walk alone, for He is with us. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lo, even until the end of the age. He is seated at the right right hand of the throne of God. He is seated there in dominion, in majesty and power, but also with sympathy. Hebrews 5.15 As the author and perfecter both of our salvation and our faith, He is interceding for us. You are His joy. You are His joy. And He is your reward. Brothers and sisters, I encourage us to run to win. (laughs) And the only life that pleases God and wins the race for time and eternity, is the life of faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sometimes overcome with the majesty of Your plan for us. From the beginning of time that You would pursue us. what you endured as a man, fully God and fully man, on the cross and leading up to it, on our behalf is unimaginable. God, we're so thankful that you love us so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is our reward because of what Jesus has done. We can do nothing. And yet, Lord, you've called us to participate in your great plan. You've called each of us as believers to become ministers of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to you. Lord, I pray this morning that as revival is taking place in Wilmore, Kentucky, as revival is taking place on the campus of Fruitland Baptist Bible Institute in North Carolina. As revival is taking place in other churches and fellowships around the country, Lord, I pray that you would bring a new power, a new presence, a new awareness of the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. A new power to walk in a manner worthy of our calling that we might cast off, throw off the things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles us, that sin of unbelief. God, I pray that by Your Spirit, You'd work in each of our hearts 
to bring us to a new place. I pray that you would glorify yourself in us. We come this morning, Lord, in humility, repentance, and faith. Because of your goodness, we know it. We've experienced it. We've tasted the goodness of God. May we not hoard it to ourselves, but share it to a hungry and dying world. Pray, Lord, that you would be honored this morning as we come in your presence through remembrance as we take the bread and the wine and we remember until you come. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.